Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Friday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Jim Garrity is off today. As we told you yesterday, he's accompanying and chaperoning a field trip to Gettysburg National Battlefield in Pennsylvania. Uh, we're joined today by Alexandra DeSanctis of National Review. Alexandra, always good to be with you. Great to be back. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today, as always. And Alexandra, the good and the bad deal with the ongoing and ferocious abortion debate in this country, with Democrats in different states taking very different approaches here. Let's start with the Democrats taking the pro-life position in our good martini. Your colleague Jack Crow at National Review writes, Louisiana Governor John Bell Edwards on Thursday signed legislation prohibiting abortion once a fetal heartbeat can be detected, which usually occurs around six weeks into pregnancy. The heartbeat bill, which does not include an exception for rape or incest, will be implemented only if similar legislation recently passed in Mississippi is upheld in federal court. It passed the State House of Representatives in Louisiana on Wednesday on a bipartisan vote of 79 to 23. The bill's sponsor, Democratic State Senator John Milkovich, argued that the effective six-week abortion ban reflected the values of his constituents in a statement celebrating the bill's passage. Quote, God values human life, and so do the people of Louisiana. We believe this is an important step in dismantling the attack of the abortion cartel on our next generation. Uh, there have been heartbeat bills passed in Ohio, Kentucky, Georgia, and Missouri. Obviously, the Alabama bill, which we've talked about, goes even farther. Governor Edwards saying he's pro-life. This is consistent with the way he's always been. And he also wants uh, more steps to be taken to make sure that people in need are taken care of by the state after birth. So, Alexandra, the big difference here is you actually have Democrats strongly standing up for life in uh, Louisiana. What do you make of what's happened in Louisiana? You know, I'm really excited about it. This is, I think, the, the fifth, maybe the sixth state um, so far this year to pass a heartbeat bill. So I'm, I'm glad to see just sort of the general trend continuing. But I think it's particularly exciting to see a bill pass on a bipartisan basis to be sponsored by a Democrat and to be signed by a Democrat. Because if you look at polling, a majority of Democrats actually favor limiting abortion to the first trimester at most. So the Democratic Party, the National Democratic Party, and its politicians are out of step, not only with the average American, but with their own constituents. And I feel like I'm beating this drum all the time. And and so are um, you know other people in the pro-life movement, including you know pro-life Democrats, um, talk about this all the time. And yet the politicians just can't seem to keep up. But I think in Louisiana, we have a situation where enough of the constituents are, are very vocally pro-life, even if they're Democrats, that their representatives feel like they have to take that seriously. Their governor knows he has to be pro-life and has to support this legislation if he wants to stay in office. So I think it's really exciting to see that happen. You mentioned the numbers specifically on Democrats wanting to limit abortion, at least a majority of them, uh, to the first trimester. Where are we on numbers, whether it's the country as a whole or even among Democrats on the heartbeat legislation, which takes it closer to about half that time of about six weeks? You know, there actually hasn't been enough polling on this yet. It's really frustrating to me the way the, the poor way in which polling companies uh, conduct abortion polling. So I haven't seen enough. But I, I did see at least one poll from April uh, showing that a majority of Americans just broadly support heartbeat bills. It's a slim majority, but a majority do. And what's really interesting to me about that polling is that when Americans are told by the polling company that a heartbeat is detectable as early as six weeks, the support for the bill actually goes up. And I would have predicted it would go down because people would say, oh, six weeks, that's super early. Maybe women kind of need more time to make a decision. But in fact, when people hear that, they say, 
wow, that's so early, you know, that, that the fetus has a heartbeat then, geez, maybe I should support this bill. I think that's really, really interesting. What's your reaction, Alexandra, to the uh, argument from the left, pro-choice community, that uh, is howling mad over the fact that a lot of these heartbeat bills don't have rape or incest uh, exceptions? You know, I think it's understandable. I think a lot of people, um, the vast majority of Americans even want to have those exceptions in there because, you know, people have a, a heart for the woman uh, involved and understandably so. Uh, and I think that's sort of a concession that the pro-life movement has long been willing to make. And so I, I sort of I don't mind seeing that exception in there because so many of those ca- those cases are so rare. It's, you know, fewer than one percent of abortion cases are in a situation like that. And I think, you know, by and large, those types of exceptions help to persuade the public. That's the most amazing thing about the 2016 presidential campaign. Whenever there's a debate and the abortion issue comes up, the the point of contention almost always comes to the rape exception. And President Trump was able to move it to late term abortion, which is where we're heading in our next martini. But the fact that he was able to make that pivot and the conversation stayed there in the 2016 presidential debate with millions of people watching was was quite something. Oh, totally agreed. I'm still fascinated that he was the one who managed to do it after decades (laughs) of Republicans trying to talk about abortion. All right, let's move on to Illinois now, where there are also uh, Democrats in power. They control the legislature there, but they have a very different agenda when it comes to abortion. They want to expand uh, abortion and its access, uh, much along the lines of what New York did. Uh, Other states have done, Virginia tried to do, and and that sort of thing. Uh, But the pushback is pretty significant as well. Uh, I doubt that they're going to have the numbers to stop this on the pro-life side. But that's not stopping Republican Illinois State Representative Avery Bourne from doing what she can to sound the alarm about what the legislation would actually do. Uh, In addition to being a Republican lawmaker who is pro-life, she is pretty far along in her pregnancy. And so she uh, made a couple of impassioned statements on the floor of the state house recently, starting with what she sees as wiggle room in how the proposed uh, legislation would deal with viability. This bill will mean that if a baby requires extraordinary medical measures after they're born, doctors could determine up to the 40th week of pregnancy that that baby was never viable because it had to be flown to the NICU after it was born. She also pointed to poorly defined terms like familial health being a reason for an abortion, and she used her own case as an emotional example. This bill will mean that for a woman at my stage in pregnancy, where the baby responds to his dad's voice as he reads him books at night, the woman could go to the facility. The baby is perfectly healthy. But if that woman says, based on my familial health, this is medically necessary, that is allowed. And here's how she closed her statement. This bill is not about keeping abortion legal in Illinois. This is about a massive expansion that will impact viable babies. And that is wrong. So, Alexandra, you follow these debates closely as anyone. So what is actually on the table in Illinois and what do you make of her response to it? Oh, she's exactly right. And the problem with these bills is so often the Democrats pushing them want to talk about how, you know, late in pregnancy women are are only getting abortions when their life is threatened, essentially, or there's some kind of severe abnormality with the child. And that's simply not the case. If you look at the best data that we have on this, obviously, it's a little bit spotty because there's not requirements on abortion reporting. There's no requirement that women give a a reason for the abortions that they get even late in pregnancy. So it's hard to say for sure. But based on the best research that I've seen, the majority of abortions, even after 20 weeks, 
are not in cases where there's an issue of, of serious maternal health or, or fetal health. So we're talking about elective abortions past the point where the fetus could be delivered and survive, you know, with medical care a lot of the time, but could survive. This bill is, I think, perhaps the most radical expansion of abortion rights in any state if it were to pass, which I think it will, uh, and be signed. It would establish abortion as a fundamental right. It would repeal the state ban on partial birth abortion, uh, which wouldn't really have much of an effect since there's a, a federal ban on it. But, um, you know, extremely radical stuff here. There are few debates that have more euphemisms than this debate. So uh, what do they generally mean by familial health being an uh, issue for abortion? Oh, that's a very interesting question. That um, harkens back to Doe v. Bolton, which was the companion case to Roe v. Wade, in which the court established this whole list of types of health uh, that women could claim as an exception to the the sort of late-term restrictions on abortion. So if a woman has a psychological health reason or a familial health reason um, or financial health even, a woman could say that she needs late-term abortion. So this could be anything from her husband just or her partner not wanting her to have a child. That could be a reason for her to obtain an abortion uh, past the point at which the state would otherwise limit it. So you think it's going to happen in Illinois. Are there other uh, deep blue states that are on the verge of doing this? I, I know, I believe Vermont did it and Rhode Island tried but failed. Uh, what else are we seeing on the horizon there? That's right. I think Vermont would be the one to watch. And I'm not sure if it's officially passed, but it's very close to doing so. I think they're still in the process of amending it. And they have a a Republican governor, Phil Scott, there in Vermont, who seems to be saying that he's going to sign it. He hasn't said for sure yet, but he has said, you know, I support a woman's right to choose and I support Roe v. Wade, Um, neither of which (laughs) I don't think is really uh, indicative that he ought to be supporting this bill because this is beyond the pale of anything like that. Um, But I think that would be the next one to look for. I hope to be writing about that in the, the near future. Alexander, we'll find out how this all plays out in 2020 from a political standpoint. The uh, pro-life side, of course, is pointing to states like Illinois, like New York, Vermont, and others that uh, are basically advocating for abortion even when the baby is in the birth canal fully uh, gestated at 40 weeks. And uh, the the pro-choice side is saying, look at these crazies on the right. They're advocating uh, for bans on abortion, criminalizing doctors when some women might not even know they're pregnant. So uh, both sides are painting the others as radicals here. How do you expect it to uh, be viewed by the public? You know, it's really interesting. I think the problem is because of Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey and these other Supreme Court cases, we can have radicalism, you know, so-called radicalism on both sides of the spectrum, but only the radical bills on the pro-abortion side are going to be upheld because of our abortion jurisprudence. And so I think Americans, unfortunately, have this view of, well, the status quo is what it is and women need to have the right to choose. And so they kind of let states like New York and Illinois off the hook while seeing Alabama as more radical. But I do think, you know, the vast majority of Americans at the same time disagree with the Democratic Party on this. And and to the extent they start to see them as more extreme over time and realize how bad it is, I I hope they'll turn more uh, toward the pro-life side over time. Alexander, let's move on to our crazy martini now and moving away from the abortion debate. Let's talk tariffs. Associated Press. In a surprise announcement that could derail a major trade deal, President Donald Trump announced Thursday that he is slapping a 5% tariff on all Mexican imports effective June 10th to pressure the country to do more to crack down on the surge of Central American migrants trying to cross the U.S. border. He said the percentage will gradually increase up to 25%, quote, until the illegal immigration problem is remedied. The decision showed the administration going to new lengths and looking for new levers to pressure Mexico to take action, even if those risk upending other policy priorities, like the United States-Mexico-Canada agreement, a trade deal that is the cornerstone of Trump's legislative agenda and seen as beneficial to his re-election effort. It also risks further damaging the already strained relationship between the U.S. and Mexico, two countries whose economics are 
are deeply intertwined. So, Alexandra, we've had this uh, discussion before with uh, the tariffs going back and forth between the U.S. and and China. One thing we know for sure is that there is a crisis on the border. Even the liberals uh, agree with that. We are now seeing north of 100,000 people uh, trying to cross each month, some claiming asylum, some just trying to cross the border illegally. Uh, it's, we're busting at the seams down there. It's beyond capacity, and something has to be done. So the fact that Trump is frustrated and wants to address the crisis is certainly understandable. The question is whether raising prices on things coming in from Mexico will actually force the Mexican government to do more, which it probably could because it lets all these caravans through. Uh, or is, is it just going to sock us in the pocketbook because we're, we we end up paying for these things and the Mexican government just reaps the political benefits here? You know, I think it'll largely be the latter. And I'm not an expert on the, the border crisis, but my understanding is that whereas, you know, 10 years ago or something like that, the vast majority of illegal entrants were migrants from Mexico. And today that's simply not the case. These are mostly families or unaccompanied minors from countries in Central America. And so if we're going to put the responsibility on the Mexican government to somehow be regulating our border by not letting these caravans through, I mean, to some extent, it's understandable that we'd want them to do that. But it seems like we're not dealing with the problem at the source. We're not even dealing with the problem at our own border of whether we have enough people there, whether we have enough judges to try and you know sort out these asylum claims. Those are the types of things we ought to be doing, not somehow forcing Mexico to be a more effective intermediary and in stopping the caravans. It's also a regressive tax, effectively. Uh, I mean, everybody got a tax cut, or most people got a tax cut, I should say, from the 2017 tax cuts. But for uh, the middle class, it's uh, anywhere from about 1000 to $2,000 a year on average. But if we're paying more for Chinese goods and now paying more for uh, Mexican goods, particularly if it gets up to a 25% tariff, those could be eaten into. Now, if the tariffs have the effect Trump wants and Mexico buckles and all of a sudden things quiet down at the border in relatively short order, uh, the threat will probably have paid off. But uh, if Mexico doesn't blink here, uh, it's us that's going to be paying the price here and not much is going to change at the border. Yeah, I think the problem is we're hurting ourselves, we're hurting the middle class, and I think probably for nothing, I don't see how this could be a a terribly effective lever in the immigration battle. I I think he's focusing on the wrong source, and probably the administration is just looking to be doing something so it looks like they're attempting a solution because they don't really have any better options right now. That's the leverage he's trying to use right now. Uh, He said trade wars are easy to win. Uh, We'll see. Uh, Alexandra, great to have you with us as always. Have a great weekend, and we'll talk to you soon. Absolutely. You too. Alexander DeSanctis of National Review in for Jim Garrity today. Jim will be back on Monday. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us. Remember, if you like us, go to iTunes, leave us a nice review. And also a reminder that you can now find us on your favorite home interactive device. Alexa, Google Home, things like that. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Have a great weekend, everyone. See you Monday on the Three Martini Lunch.